if you've lived with a group of people for a while, it creates a certain bond. And even if the group splits and people move away, you have like a very tight network. That's something that, that doesn't vanish, even if you take away all, all the houses and all that. It's still there. Welcome back to another Berlin. My name is Cody. And my name is Katarina. This is part three in our four-part mini-series on squatting in Berlin. In the last two episodes, we talked about the first and second wave of political squatting, reaching from the 60s until the early 90s. In this episode, we will take a break from the history lesson and focus a bit more on what it's like when a house gets squatted how the building and living space is transformed, and talk a bit about how some of these former squats have become centers for music and culture throughout the city. Then we'll hear the story of what it's like to live today as part of a community in a prominent former squat. A quick disclaimer. We are not professional historians, and though we did our very best to present accurate information, history is complicated, and the stories we have are often incomplete. The conclusions we've come to, based on the facts we have, are our own. We hope this history and these stories are as interesting to you as they are to us, and if so, we encourage you to explore and learn more. Our website, another.berlin, has some links and resources to help get you started. We'd like to start with going over what it's like when a building gets squatted and what it looks like when it is. Most acts of squatting start with a plan of action. Then, on the day of, one group of squatters enter the building and another group stays outside to keep watch. Those inside build barricades, making it difficult for anyone outside, including the police, to break in. When the house is secured, squatters would then publicly announce their political intentions and plans to press and other media outlets. Often, they would also hang banners with these messages from windows and balconies. Many former squats around the city continue this tradition today to show solidarity with various causes or to call out injustices. And then the battle and negotiations begin. In the past, there was a good chance that the squatters could stay or find a path towards legalization, but today, most will be forcibly evicted within hours. Now let's move on to the architecture of a squat. Even though many squatters ideologically reject uniformity in any sense, this building still carried a strong and easily recognizable visual identity of colored facades, graffiti, and banners. If you live in Berlin, you've probably seen a number of buildings like this throughout the city. One of the most common banner reads, Wir bleiben alle, or We're all staying. So this rejection of a uniform style becomes a style itself. The insides of these squats are also pretty interesting. A lot of the walls have been removed and 
these create communal spaces for all the different residents living in the building, not just that one apartment. In some cases, there are no locks on any doors. Some of these buildings were renovated from the ground up by squatters to accommodate exactly what they needed from their building. This might be a different way of dividing up the living and working spaces within the building, or it could be music venues, coffee shops, or movie theaters that are built into what was otherwise only residential or industrial. This is a way that the squatters can make sure that everything they need is actually provided for them by their building. Squatting as a movement contributed to the way we perceive housing through a lot of experimental pioneer housing projects. As much as squats were able to provide important tools and resources to the outside community, they were also just as important for creating unique communities within themselves to give a voice and outlet to marginalized groups. For instance, various examples of collective living with a focus on women's rights are Hexen House or Witch House, which was squatted in 1980s in West Berlin, and Liebig Fiengeises squatted in Friedrichshain in the 1990s, which still exists today, and it's one of the most prominent gender identity-oriented housing collectives in Berlin. The first queer squats appeared in Schöneberg in the 80s. They would call Tunte House or Queen House. Some of them, like the one in Kastanienallee, still stands and fights for the rights of the LGBT community. Other examples include a squad from early 80s in Straße that housed sex workers and their children. Recently, a group of people in their 70s and 80s have squatted a house in Pankow called Stillestrasse, or Silent Street. And we haven't even scratched the surface. If you're still curious, you can go to our website and check out more information. We have it there. As we said, unfortunately a lot of these projects didn't survive to this day because of eviction, contract issues, or other legal issues. But what happened with the former squats that survived? Even though most became legal, a lot of the former squats still carry a politically active mindset and serve the city as an alternative space for critical thinking and artistic expression. Some examples of these are Supermali, Chocoladen, Kupi, Morgenrot, and many others that are a bit off the grid. <laughs> One of the freedoms of having complete control over your living and community space is that if you play in a band or you know someone that does, well, you can just build a bar and a stage, and now you have a music venue. In fact, a number of former squats have continued on as legalized music venues, providing a valuable outlet for underground and experimental music. Even though a number of squats from the 90s legalized and received 25-year contracts, many of those have not been extended and are either ending soon or already have. While many of these spaces are facing the threat of eviction or other pressures, 
they still have a powerful draw for those who are looking for an alternative home and lifestyle to what most of society offers. We had a pleasure to talk to a current resident about what it's like to live in one of these long-running former villain squads. Like, I mean, I moved into the first collective when I was 18. And then when I moved out of that, I was just like, like I had a really hard time living in an apartment. It was just impossible. <laughs> so then I looked for another one. <laughs> I prefer being somewhere where I can, like where there's people around that I know in like a community. Like I enjoy just being able to go outside and see, having people in the yard that I know and I can talk to. Uh, it's nice to uh, be able to organize events and stuff right where you live. And I can't sleep if I can't hear the party downstairs. <laughs> Here and in the last place where I lived, it's um, you have uh, independent collectives that operate the, the different shows, uh, spaces, whatever. Um, you may or may not join, depending on your preferences. And if you do join, uh, people get together and decide as a group uh, how they want to organize stuff. I started running experimental music shows. And um, then a lot of people joined, and in the end, it was really like people would call me up a week before and say, Hey, next Thursday, I have seven noise acts. I don't know where to play. Can we come? And I say, Yeah, sure. I, if I go dumpster diving, there will be food, <laughs> you know? Uh, and that's a fucking luxury. It provides a space for people to run projects without having to consider obstacles that you have in the outside world. Like, you don't need to think about noise and stuff. It provides a great space to just try out new stuff and you know it was possible to just like I, I ran shows of which I knew there were maximum three paying guests coming but I could do it because uh, why not? All these things are impossible if you have to think about funding and you have to have references and you uh, have to look professional and have a web page and, and you know like a lot of good ideas come from like people getting together spontaneously and stuff and being like oh there's nothing happening well, let's uh, have a jam session. There was a whole series of squatting actions when people squatted other shops or whatever. Some of them were just like a Saturday afternoon thingy where we like eat cakes and um, exchange some old clothes or whatever, and then people got evicted. But like there was one or two that stayed for like three days, and people organized like a lawyer that would come and like um, counsel people for free on their, their problems with their houses in the neighborhood. So, that was actually really nice uh, actions also because because it brought the neighborhood together and suddenly you'd have like a lot of old men uh, like wandering around the neighborhood being like, where is this place where I can get counseling for this? <laughs> you know? And that's actually nice because um, I think what well, well, people sometimes forget a little in these projects that have been existing for a long time is that there is an outside world like it's very easy to like live in between your whatever forgetting that people outside have uh, different pro problems
it was such a cool experience to get the chance to talk to someone that is currently living in one of these former squats. Uh, it was fantastic. They let us in uh, and shared their story with us. You know, wh when I lived in New York, when I first moved there, I lived in not squats, but they were kind of converted uh, warehouse buildings. And uh, a lot of people I've met had decided to put, because they had this empty space, this blank space. So they, they thought, oh, we'll, we'll put a music studio in our apartment or we'll put a stage in there or a bar and we'll have rock concerts in our apartment and we'll sell cheap beer. It was it was totally illegal, but it was an amazing atmosphere and environment and it, to meet people to uh, so many bands formed from just seeing people at the open mics and stuff and saying oh you play bass like oh you want to play bass in my band and it was such a cool way to experience the city because it was like you almost any night you'd come home there's something going on it was these two big buildings that were facing each other so it was this whole street you know listening to the idea of the everyday life in, in one of these former squats here in Berlin, it really kind of reminded me of that. You could just make your space into what you wanted and kind of, you know, have the freedom to do that. Maybe spaces like this exist because people need them. Because maybe the way we've let society form is a little too rigid. These spaces teach us valuable lessons on way in which, by voicing our needs collectively, we can move towards a more inclusive society, even if that has to involve radical and slightly illegal means. Thanks for listening. This has been part three of our four-part mini-series on squatting. In the next episode, we go to a living squat and hear the stories of current squatters working to transform the movement in modern Berlin. Music for this episode was graciously provided by One Man Orchestra and Mark Weiser under the name Arun Mukha from the album 141190 Ein Akustisches Psychogramm. The research material and show notes are available on our website, another.berlin. Please subscribe on your favorite place for podcasts and get in touch on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, my name is Cody. And my name is Katerina. Thanks for listening and see you next time.